Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today I'm in studio number two, which is my home office. And we are recording via Zoom on our podcast with another special guest coming all the way. I don't know if this is the farthest because we have had a couple guests from Australia but we have a special guest from Australia, Dr. Patrick Patty Allwright, who's a pancreatic cancer survivor, joining us from Coffs Harbor, which is on the east coast of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And I'm going to call you Patty for Thank the podcast. For me, yeah. Thank, Thank you for having me. And full disclosure, Dr. Allwright is an ear, nose, and throat doctor there in Australia, connected with me via email, had heard about the podcast, which we're going to talk about how he found out because it's always fascinating, and uh, wanted to share his story with our audience. So Patty, as he goes by, thank you for uh, for joining us. How did you find out about Project Purple and the podcast? That's question number one. I was, I my daughter put me onto um, a website, a pancreatic cancer website, um, in the United States, which came up with blogs every night, and I read it. And um, I then came across a lady who you interviewed just the other day from Pittsburgh, Mrs. Manapuli. Kim, so yeah, right. Kim Manupelli. Manupelli, <laughs> yeah. And um, I started talking to her, and she said to me, have you, have you been on, on the Project Purple website? And I said, no, I haven't. And then I went and looked at it, and um, I was going through it. And at that stage, you had about 125 podcasts on it. And I was looking what everybody was talking about. And I thought, well, I've got a completely different perspective on how this disease presented and, and how I've managed it. I wonder if that would be of interest to a general audience. And um, that's what prompted me to send you the email and also to send you the last chapter of my memoir that I wrote for my grandkids, which outlines my whole journey of this cancer. And, um, and that was how the whole interest started. And uh, so that's, that's how we end up talking today. Such a small world, you know, and, and just to back up for a second, you know, this podcast has been a, a labor of love for me. And when I had this idea to start this podcast, you know, it was all about connecting and raising awareness and to hear that, you know, you connected with Kim and, you know, to, to hear, you know, just the story and the backstory, which I was not aware of full disclosure is just really, really cool and really special. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. And this just is testament to this podcast and what it's become and what it's all about. As we were, before we were talking, before we hit record here, I, I asked you if you had uh, any questions and you said, well, I had done some homework and you had listened to some podcasts and and did your research as I, as I figured you would. Um, and as you know, the first segment on all our podcasts is always the, the first couple of minutes or as long as it takes, I should say, we always give our audience and, and well, I should say our guests to give our audience kind of the opportunity to share their story. And I always preface that by saying, Patty, you can go as far back and stay as high level as you want. And then we'll go from there. But so with that, 
the mic is yours to share your journey and your story um, in terms of how you've come to this point in terms of diagnosis and uh, journey with pancreatic cancer. Thank you very much, Dina. Um, i tell you where I'll start. I'll, I'll start with my background first of all. I was born and brought up in South Africa. I went to university um, in Johannesburg at the University of, of the Witwatersrand, where I did both undergraduate and postgraduate ENT training. Um, after qualifying in ENT in Johannesburg, I moved down to Durban, which is on the east coast of South Africa, where I went into private practice for 15 years. And after 15 years in private practice there, I thought, oh, there must be more to the world than just this. And I got a bit itchy and decided I wanted to venture out. So we decided to look elsewhere. And um, we ended up here in Coffs Harbour, as I said, which is on the east coast of, um, of Australia, midway between Brisbane and Sydney, which is a, a, a town of about 80,000 people. Now, I thought I was, I was coming from a very busy city practice to a quiet regional town practice, but in fact, it was the exact opposite. I arrived here and I was thrown in the middle of the storm. There was only one other ENT surgeon here, and um, so I was thrust into it, and 15 years passed in no time at all. We worked, and... I built the practice up from one ENT surgeon until eventually when I retired, there were four of us in wow. the practice. And as doctors do, they work, they work, they work, and they never look after themselves. They're very good at preaching to other people, and they don't, they don't take enough time to look after themselves. Anyway, I, somewhere around 2016, I thought, oh, it's about time I went and saw a GP. And I went to a fellow South African guy and uh, – I said to him, Jay, look, I just need a going over. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I've got type 2 diabetes. That's being managed. I've seen an endocrinologist for that. And I've got blood pressure, which is under control, and I take tablets. He said, well, sit down. Let me examine you. And he examined me, and he said, oh, you've got a mass in your thyroid. So I said, oh, come on, Jay. I said, we all find lumps and bumps in the thyroid. He said, no, seriously, you've got something there. So I said, all right, what are we going to do? So he said, well, I want you to go and have an ultrasound. So I went off and he organized an ultrasound for me and they said, oh, there's definitely a nodule there. We must do a fine needle aspiration biopsy. So they put a little fine needle into the nodule, suck a little bit of it out, put it on a slide and send it off to the pathologist. And the pathologist phones him back. He says, look, it looks like a malignancy. So he phones me, he says, look, it's a malignancy. You need to go and see Stan, who's a, a thyroid surgeon who comes up from Sydney. Now, we have a lot of surgeons visiting our town, and we're very, very fortunate. We have an incredibly good medical infrastructure that um, we have specialists visiting here every week from Sydney. It's only an hour's flight from Sydney. So we have an incredibly good, for the size of our town, our medical infrastructure is absolutely fantastic. Anyway, so Stan saw me, and he said, look, um, you must have half your thyroid. I said, fine, Stan, go ahead, let's book it and do it. So I went into theatre and I was quite happy with it. I wasn't phased about the procedure or that at all. And he took out half my thyroid and I woke up and he said, all well, fine. Next day I went home and he phoned me and he said, oh, you can retire. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you've got a malignancy there. You're going to get a big insurance payout. So I said, Stan, are you pulling my leg? He said, no, I'm serious. He said, you've got a medullary cell carcinoma of the thyroid. 
which is not a good one to have. It's not a good one to have. He said, you're going to need the other half of your thyroid gland taken out. So I said, fine. Um, but he said, what we need to do is we need to do some blood tests to test for the, the, uh, the hormone that's secreted by this particular tumor, which is called calcitonin. Now, if that level is raised, that means you've got secondaries already. So, wow, now I was sort of taken aback. This is like 10 days before Christmas. He says, go and have the blood done and let's see what's happened. So off I go to the laboratory and have the blood taken. And now, as I said, it's Christmas time. So the test doesn't get done. So over Christmas, over New Year, I'm sitting, I'm worrying. I don't know whether I've got secondaries or whatever. Anyway, eventually in the New Year, the result comes back. I haven't got secondaries. Blood test, normal. So Stan says, all right, we'll make arrangements to take out the rest of the thyroid gland somewhere along the line. So about six or eight weeks later, I went back into hospital and he took out the rest of the gland. He sent it off for all genetic testing and everything. And he said to me, you're fine, you're cured, go. Fantastic. There I ducked it. I couldn't believe my luck. Couldn't believe my luck. I went to a GP who actually examined my neck. Mm. That was the first thing that was amazing. Because so often patients go to GPs and they don't get examined properly. And this is my experience in my area. I'm not talking about anywhere else. And Jay sat down and examined my neck properly like a surgeon did. And he found this little nodule. If he hadn't, that would have killed me. That would have killed me, that disease. So there I was, so fortunate, so thankful. Thank God I went to Jay and this happened. So there I was, full of the joie de vivre. And next plan was I'd get another partner in the practice and I'm now looking to retirement. So we're coming up to the end of 2017. 2017, and we're getting another partner in the practice. And I said, beginning of no, uh, 2018, sorry, um, we're getting another partner in the practice. Come the end of 2018, I'm retiring. I've had it now. I've been in ENT practice for over 30 years, medicine for over 40 years. I can hand the practice over. I'm going to retire. So I go and I decide I'm going to get a full exercise regime going, I go and have all sorts of tests done, everything done to see that I'm okay, I'm not going to drop dead on the treadmill or anything <laughs> at all, <laughs> including an angiogram, everything. In this period, I get an attack of diverticulitis. So the um, local colorectal surgeon says, go and have a CAT scan of your abdomen. So that's in February 2019. I go and I have a CAT scan of my abdomen. And after I had the scan, the radiologist calls me and he says, come sit here with me. Let's look at the pictures together. Because we're in a small town, everybody knows everybody. So come and sit here with me. And he goes through them and that. And I say to him in particular, and I remember it so clearly, is the pancreas okay? And he looks at it and he said, it looks a bit atrophic, but that could explain your type 2 diabetes. I said, there's nothing else in it. He said, no, it's fine. All okay. So I go back to the colorectal surgeon and he has a look at it. He says, okay, fine. We're going to do a colonoscopy on you. And I have a colonoscopy and everything is fine. So that's now April, 2019. If I can just backtrack a little bit to September, 2018, I have a friend in South Africa who sends me a text message. One morning I wake up and on my phone and there's this message that says, I have pancreatic cancer and I have three months to live. 
And I thought, no, what are you doing to me? It's the first thing in the morning. I haven't got my glasses on. Have I read this? Excuse me. Have I read this message incorrectly? I go and put my glasses on, and no, there it is. So I phone him and I say, no, what is going on? Now, Noel's a GP in Port Elizabeth on the, on the east coast of Southern Africa also. And he says, I'm lying in bed. I palpate my abdomen, and I feel in the middle of my stomach, I feel this big lump. And I go to the, the radiologist. They do a CAT scan. They see I've got decimated pancreatic disease. So, gosh, we are devastated. Now, there were five or six of us that all went through medical school together. We were in the same study group together. So we all decide to get together in South Africa and go and spend the weekend with Noel because we know he's now got very limited time. You know, we all know stage four pancreatic disease with this sort of thing, you've really got very limited time. So we all go and spend a very difficult weekend saying goodbye to Noel. And then we split up. I go to a school reunion. It's my 50-year school reunion. I go to that, come back to Australia, and that's when I went and had the CAT scan in my abdomen and all that. Anyway, so... We're now April 2019, and I think it's time I went and had my bloods checked again. You know, I haven't had my, my uh, sugars checked and all that sort of thing. And while I'm doing that, I'll just do this thing that Noel did called a CA 19.9, mm-hmm. which as an ENT surgeon, I've never heard of, quite honestly. And anyway, so I send off the bloods and I take no notes, and the results come back. And the CA 19.9 is 372, where it should be 35 or 37. And I look at this and I say, this is trouble. I am perfectly well. I have never felt so well in my life. I'm exercising. I'm losing weight. I'm looking good. I'm feeling good. I have no pain. I have no appetite. I have a good appetite. I have reflux, which I've had for years which I've managed with absolutely no problems. Now I've got this raised CA 19.9. So again, I'm fortunate, and, and this is where my story will differ from the layman because I could lock into systems a lot easier than the layman could. So I phone my GP and I say to him, Jay, this is what's happened. We need to see somebody about this. So he says, don't worry, I'll arrange it for you. And within a couple of days, he arranges an appointment for me with an upper GI surgeon in our town, Dr. Das. A wonderful, wonderful man. So we go and see Dr. Das, and I go along with the CAT scan and with the blood tests. And um, I say, Das, this is a story. I tell him the exact same story that I've heard. He said, well, let's have a look at the CAT scan. And he puts up the CAT scan from April 2019. And he says, there it is in the neck of the pancreas. So I said, but when the radiologist saw it and the gastrointestinal guy saw it, they didn't see anything. He said, there it is. You can see it clearly in the neck of the pancreas. He said, have you got any other pictures? I said, well, there's some other pictures from August the previous year. He says, let's have a look at those. I have a look at those. He said, there's the start of it already in August the previous year. And he said, that could have been there for years beforehand. So anyway, we're now sitting April 2019. We now have a lesion in the neck of the pancreas and nothing else. Everything else looks perfectly clear. He says, you're going to need surgery. You're going to need to go to the um, upper GI unit down in Sydney 
where you'll see one of the professors down there who runs the unit and they'll take over. He says, but before you go, go and get an MRI scan done just so we can see anything else. Off I go for an MRI scan, they see nothing else. They only see the primary lesion, which is about two centimeters encasing the mesenteric artery and a bit around the portal vein already. Now, the portal vein is the main vein that drains all the venous blood from the gastrointestinal tract up through the liver. So it's, it's a very important causeway. And of course, the mesenteric artery is the one that feeds, is the main artery that feeds all the, all the gastrointestinal tract. And so the MRI scan is clear. And so we go to Sydney, we go and see the professor down there and he says, okay, fine. Um, I'm going to do a distal pancreatectomy on you and a splenectomy. I say to him, you're going to do it open or endoscopically? Endoscopically with the telescopes, in other words, open, doing a formal, what we call laparotomy. Um, he says, no, because it's encasing the portal vein, they might have to resect the portal vein, but he's not worried about doing that because they do that every day when they do liver transplants and that sort of thing. These guys are very experienced. They are a high volume unit, which is where you want to go to for this type of surgery always. You don't want to be saddled with the occasional Whipple surgeon or that at all. You want to be doing this with the people who do it often because they do it the best. So he says, that's what we're going to do and you'll be fine. After that, we'll go for chemo. So I decide, okay, that's great, but I'm going to get another opinion. So I go to, I talk to the professor from the other hospital in Sydney and he says, well, we do it a different way. We do pre-op chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And then we do the surgery, right? And then you go on to post-op chemotherapy. Now, I had a fixation in my head about chemotherapy. And it was based on my experience of head and neck surgery. Because as part of our training as ENT surgeons, we did a lot of head and neck surgery. And we saw what we put those patients through with chemotherapy. And it was just absolutely horrific. And I had this fixation in my head. If I have severe disease, I'm not spending the rest of my days having chemotherapy that's going to make me ill as anything. I'm not going to have anything done. I will elect not to have any treatment. That was my feeling. So anyway, the other hospital guy says, this is what we'll do. And I said, no, I don't like this idea of this chemotherapy. I'll rather go with the surgery and the post-op chemo. So we go down to Sydney, go into this beautiful cancer hospital in surgery called the Chris O'Brien Hospital, magnificent place where I get admitted and I'm lying in bed the night before. And just a little aside, which, which was quite interesting, being a doctor now, you're looking at things from a completely different perspective. You're trying to be a patient. You don't want to be second guessing anybody at all. You just want to be a patient. So in comes the young doctor to examine you before you go for your surgery. So I don't say anything at all. I lie in bed and he comes in and he says, stands at the head of the bed and he says to me, oh, you look far too well to be in this place. <laughs> so well, thank you very much. That makes me feel much better. He says, all right, so you're having some surgery tomorrow. Let's examine you. Lie back in the bed and I lie back in the bed and I'm waiting for him to take my pajama top off to listen to my chest with his stem. And he doesn't do that. He just puts his stethoscope over my chest and touches my abdomen and says, okay, you'll be fine. And... Um, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And he walks out the door. And I said to my wife, now, if that was a medical student of mine, 
I would have said to him, right, now you go back and you go and do another six months. When you learn to examine a patient properly, then you come back and see me again. So it was quite a chuckle, but it's very interesting because it's the first step of being on the other side and watching how people do things and the way you do things. Mm-hmm. Now, not meaning to be critical, but it's just natural that you actually do this. Anyway, the following morning, a beautiful young anesthetist comes and sees me and says, this is what we're going to do. She takes me down to theatre. She puts up the arterial line, puts in the, the epidural for the pain control, lies me back, reassures me, everything. Everything's going to be fine. I'm quite comfortable. I'm very happy. I'm very confident with the team I have around me because I know they are the experts in Australia. These guys are going to do the absolute best for me. And I drift off into this beautiful sleep. I wake up in ICU. I wake up beautifully in ICU, very, very, very comfortably. And as I open my eyes, I see my surgeon sitting at the head of my bed. Sorry, at the foot of my bed. Now, my policy always was when I operated on patients and they woke up and I had good news to tell them, I would always stand at the head of the bed and talk down to them. When I had bad news to tell them, I would always sit next to them at the bed. And here was Chabelle sitting next to me at the, head of, at the foot of my bed. And I knew immediately he hasn't got good news for me. And he said to me, I'm sorry, we opened you up. We started dissecting around the pancreas and I decided I just need to have a feel at the liver. And I put my hand around the back of the liver and I could feel a nodule. We biopsied the nodule and it was positive for adenocarcinoma. So we elected not to do any surgery. So that immediately took me from now the stage two pancreatic carcinoma to stage four. So that changed the picture completely, completely. And my wife, Rosé, was there um, and my one daughter was there. And I said to them in ICU, I said, girls, this is the story. It's stage four. We have to have a lot of talking about this because we're now going to have a completely different outcome to what we thought before. But the first thing for us to do is to get over the surgery. And anybody who's had a laparotomy, which is not where they cut you from top to bottom, but from side to side, will know that it is the most painful incision you can have. Epidurals or not, it is a, it is a miserable operation to have. My dear friend, who's a retired urologist in Coffs Harbour came down and helped me and would come in every day and get me out of bed and walk me around the hospital and that sort of thing. And we spent about a week in hospital and went back to Coffs Harbour with a plan that, well, where do we go from here? We need to go and have a talk about this. In my mind was this, oh, heavens, chemotherapy. I'm not going to do this. I'm just not going to do this. If this is stage four pancreatic carcinoma, I know what the numbers are like. There's no point in doing anything about it. Anyway, my friend Stan, the thyroid surgeon, phoned me up and he said, I believe you're not keen on going on routine chemotherapy. So I said, Stan, I'm not. I, I, I just don't see any point in it at all. I say the numbers say stage four, you can do what you want to. You're going to prolong, but your quality of life is going to be poor. So that was my impression. They said, well, look, 
There's a crowd down in Melbourne called NGNA that are running a trial where they're using nanoparticle delivery of doxyrubicin and a immune stimulating drug. And they have got a pancreatic cancer arm of their trial called the Carolyn trial. And I can get you onto that trial. Now, to get from here to Melbourne was quite a logistical exercise with flying and busing and all that sort of thing. But we weren't concerned about that. Anyway, we met with these people and they said, are you sure? Because everybody we've got on the trial up to now, which was, I think, about 10 patients, has been on chemotherapy and that before. You are chemotherapy naive. You're the first patient that we would have who's had no chemotherapy. And I said, I'm insistent that we do this because I'm scared of having routine chemotherapy. Now, now it comes a fault on my part and also to a certain extent on the part of the oncologist. My part because I was adamant about this chemotherapy, that I wasn't going to spend my day, as I say, with my head in a bucket. But the oncologist had never explained to me what chemotherapy today with pancreatic cancer entails. Nobody explained to me about a Braxane and gemcitabine and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's both our faults. And this is where being a doctor becomes a problem also because they take for granted you know stuff, mm. whereas a lot of the time you don't know stuff, but they take it for granted you know it and you don't ask it also, you know. So it's, it's a two-way street. So with that, I, I want to jump in here for a second, Patty, because that's one of my questions. And just hearing you talk so far, and, and we've interviewed, and I've talked to doctors personally that have gone through this. Um, you know, and I know, I have a note here. It's like, when you're a doctor, you know too much. So to this point, do you think knowing too much was a benefit or a detriment? It's a debate we still have today as a family. We talk about it all the time. Is it better to know too much or to know too little? And quite honestly, at the end of the day, I don't know the answer. The one thing I can say, and having listened to so many people's stories of their, their pathways through pancreatic cancer, the advantage that I had was that I could lock into systems a lot easier than the layman. So the access and, to the certain particular yeah. doctors, certain trials, yeah. which, but the, but the knowledge about, or would you say then, because like you said, the oncologist, he assumed you knew, or, or he That's made that right. assumption that because you were a surgeon and you were an ENT surgeon, that you knew the risk and you knew everything. Yep. But as we know, when you assume, you know, there's that analogy here in the United States, like you make a, uh, an ASS out of you and I, when you assume, yep. <laughs> uh, when you make assumptions. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, that, that it's fascinating because I think, I, I, I don't know, this is an interesting topic because I think knowing too much, like I've had conversations with, with many oncologists like that have had parents go through the cancer fight, you know, not necessarily directly with pancreatic cancer, but one off the top of my head, you know, and her, her parents, bat her mom battled, um, 
leukemia. And I, I said, that's got to be real a challenge because you know everything that's going on, you know, from an oncological standpoint, not necessarily from a specialty standpoint, but you know enough and, and know a lot about what's happening that it's got to be a real challenge mentally because you have to have faith in your doctors, but you're a doctor and a surgeon. So especially to trust someone to operate, it's got to be really, really challenging. Yep. Yep. But you know, um, I tried to step back many times and just be a patient. And the one thing I said to myself was, I'm not going to go and delve into the internet. I'm not going to go looking for this and looking for that because I've seen it with patients. All you do is you get down rabbit holes and wormholes mm -hmm. and, you know, you start reading about Joe's protocol and all this sort of thing. And eventually, even as a professional, you don't know what is popular. And I said, I'm going to put my faith in my colleagues. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to listen to them. And if there was something that I really wanted to know, I would go to the internet. And I can quite honestly say to this day, I spent very little time researching pancreatic cancer. And I spent very little time doing it. I've put my faith in the profession. I put my faith in the science, in the statistics, and I've gone along with that. There is a time when I'll step back and say, mm, is this the right thing we do? Should we be doing this? Have we done everything that we can? You know, but um, a lot of my, um, well, quite a few of my friends are doctors also. So we often have this debate and, and they are here with me supporting all the time. So we're talking about this very openly all the time about having a terminal disease going through a terminal process, what are we going to go through? What are you scared of? All that sort of thing. So it's, and it's been like that with the family also. It's been a very, very open process. So to go back, so we did this nanoparticle thing and we did it for about three months and all that happened is the liver just lit up with secondaries. It didn't make any difference. And one of the oncologists who's a delightful man who looks like Kramer from Seinfeld <laughs> sat down with me one day and said to me, now, why don't you go for this chemotherapy? And I said to him, doctor, I don't want to end up doing this. But he said, you're not going to do that. He said, it is not bad today. He said, a Braxane and gemcitabine does not make you sick. And just a little aside about a Braxane, the doctor who developed the intravenous of Braxane was a fellow who was a year behind me at the same medical school in Johannesburg. Patrick Souchon, he was a year behind me at medical school, and he was the one who developed the IV Braxane. Anyway, Small so world. he convinces me to go and have conventional chemotherapy. Now, I'm terrified of this. I'm absolutely terrified. But I go to our local oncologist in town, and I sit down, and I have a chat with her, and she says, let's get started, and let's see how you go. And I get started on the, um, on the Abraxane and the gemcitabine regime, and I do quite well. I have a little bit of discomfort in that. But we go through one cycle of four treatments, and then we have a break, and then we go through another cycle of another four treatments. And the levels are coming down from 19,000, and they're down to about 300 or something. And everything's going well. Suddenly the Abraxane and gemcitabine stop working. So Karen says to me, well, now we have to think of something else. So I said, well, can't we just have another go 
at the Braxane and Jim side of me. She says, look, in my experience, it's not going to work. So I said, but just do me a favor. Let's just do it. And she did it. And of course, it didn't work. So I said, well, what is the next step? She said, well, then you go on to oral capsitabine. So I said, all right, well, let's try that. And that was just an absolute disaster. I was just sick from morning to night. I was really, I was in a terrible state. And we eventually abandoned that. And she said, all right, next step is oxyplatinum and 5-FU, which is two-thirds of the fulfurinox regime. So I said, well, if that's the way we've got to go, we've got to go. Now, we're having a look at the CAT scans in the meantime, and the liver mets have got a bit smaller, but there are more of them. So the primaries got smaller. There's no other disease at all. So it's all confined to the liver now. And I know that, that with stage four pancreatic cancer or the pancreatic cancer, it's not the primary that is going to take you out. It's always going to be the secondaries. So I've got a liver full of secondaries. So we, we do this and the oxyplatinum you have there and the 5-FU, you get what I call the McDonald's takeaway where you go home with a bottle and run it for 48 hours and then go back. And I have that for six cycles. And I bounce back a week after each cycle. I bounce back. But the bouncing back is taking longer and longer. And the side effects are getting more and more noticeable. The, the peripheral neuropathy, the, the cold sensation, and the general lethargy. After the sixth one, I just don't bounce back. I really I am completely flat out. And I eventually end up in a stage where I couldn't even get out of bed. I couldn't walk. I couldn't dress myself anything. And the oncologist says to me, right, that's it. You go and get better, and when you're better, we'll have a chat again. And so I slowly get better, and I think I'm in my, about my seventh week post that now. I go and see the surgeon in town and just take the latest CAT scan to him just to get a, an opinion say, Das, look, there are these three big secondaries in my liver. Is there anything you can do about them? Can you freeze them out or just decrease the tumor load? or something like that. He says, no, look, we can't do anything. You're not well enough to do it. And he said, it, don't, it won't work in pancreatic cancer anyway. I said, fine. That's all I wanted to know. I just want to make sure I'm going to cross the T and dot the I's and everything and know that I've now come to the end of the road. That's where I am. And I will now stop all treatment. And we're going to live life for what we've got left. And that's where we are at the moment. I got a question that has come up, genetic testing, and I know this has come up with many international guests that we've had here in the United States, because when you mention oxyplatinum, I mean, we know here in the United States that platinum-based chemotherapy regimen does well with certain um, genetic markers by implementing those. Have you done genetic testing? Was genetic testing ever part we of the did process? Genetic testing on the on the on the um, on the liver met. It was sent to the Foundation of Science, I think it's called, in Los Angeles. Okay, where they did the did the full panel of testing, and nothing came up. Bracket one, bracket two, all negative. Nothing has come up. Um, again, just to backtrack, when I had the thyroid done, they did a, the genetic testing on that also to make sure that there was nothing going on there. So they did that full panel uh, of uh, full panel of testing in um, in Los Angeles, and 
all the oncologists looked at it and said, look, there's nothing there that rings a bell that pops up. There's absolutely nothing there. And the local genetic people, I was in touch with them recently, and they're doing, a, they're doing another panel of testing at the moment, and I'm waiting for those results. But by the looks of things, there is nothing that is shining a light saying, well, you know, maybe we can hook you into this or hook you into that. So that is really the stage we're sitting at at the moment, that it looks like it's probably the end of the road as far as treatment goes. So now it's basically sitting, looking back at this whole thing from a, from a philosophical point of view almost, saying, well, here's me as a doctor, up to a point I become a patient, I want to stay a patient, but I need to be a doctor. And is there any learning experience for anybody out of what I've been through? So uh, with that, you know, you look back, and I know we started in 16 when you went and did the exam. And hindsight's always twenty twenty. I know you said you were diabetic, but were there any indications? I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I hate to when we pose this question because it's not to to beat yourself up. But were there any things in the last 10, 15 years, five years, three years? Well, th three years would fit that time frame. But prior to sixteen, that were like you look back at it now, Patty, and say, yeah, that that could have been an earlier distress signal that something was brewing or something was going on. In about 2015, I saw an endocrinologist mm -hmm. with my type 2 diabetes. I was overweight. I was, I was the typical character that was going to get a type 2 diabetes. I was overweight, and um, I went and saw the endocrinologist. And we sat and had a long chat, and he was showing me papers and all that sort of thing. And he said to me, his words to me were, you've got an aging pancreas. Hmm. And he said, I'm going to want you to stay on metformin because – Besides what it does for the diabetes, it also has tumor protection. It's very good and it's been shown to reduce tumors throughout the body. He didn't specifically state that. And I said, oh, that's fine. That's great. And I went on it. And then I went on this diet and I was losing weight. And one day I was walking down to the beach and a friend of mine said to me, I lost so much weight. So I said, well, I'm, a, I'm on this Michael Mosley sugar-free diet and look at me, you know, I've lost 30 pounds or something like that. And I was feeling so good. And he said, there's nothing wrong with you. I said, Bobby, there's nothing wrong with me. I feel, I feel absolutely fantastic. Meantime, there was something brewing in there. When I went and saw the professor down in Sydney the first time, he said to me, you know what I'm trying to advocate, and it's going to be very difficult, but all patients who diagnose with type 2 diabetes should be screened for pancreatic cancer. And I said, wow, that's going to be a difficult one to institute. But he said it's a fact. He said because we're picking it up. We're picking it up, and we should be doing this. So that was – that was, and, and as I said to you earlier, CA 19.9 as an ENT surgeon, I'd never heard of in my life before. So, um, no, there was no clue. I'd never been so well in my life. I'd never felt so well. I'd retired. I was fit. I was exercising. Everything was just absolutely wonderful. And if I hadn't have gone for that blood test, and this is where the ifs and the buts and all that sort of come in. And I always say to the family, we, we mustn't waste emotional energy on this. If the radiologist had picked this up sooner, you know, if this had happened sooner, what would it have? I said, we can have a discussion, but we don't waste emotional energy on it. So if I hadn't gone for that blood test, who knows how long it would have been until it presented. 
I could have ended up like no, with feeling a mass in my abdomen and being dead in three months' time, you know. So I don't know. And just about that thing about ifs and buts and that, we spoke long and hard about the tumor being missed by the radiologist and what do we do. And I eventually said, we do nothing. We do absolutely nothing about it because what are we going to achieve? What are we going to do? The radiologist knows that it's happened. We're in medicine. We all make mistakes. We've all missed things. And there but for the grace of God go any one of us. You know, so I wasn't prepared to get all worked up and bitter and twisted about it because I felt I had to save the emotional energy for the journey that was ahead of me. So I, I put it aside and I still put it aside. That's a, and that's pretty powerful though to say, Patty. I mean, I, I, I you know, that was that's one of my questions here because just hearing you talk here, You know, that I've talked about this on other episodes. There's like an arc that people travel on. Yeah. But the outlook, though, to say that, though, that doesn't, doesn't happen overnight. Or it's not like a, you know, I think the term is like come to Jesus moment that you have because you get the disease. Uh, and you realize like, hey, the severity of I've got this pancreatic cancer. That's something that happens earlier on. Yep. where you have that mindset that, you know, and that's how you've worked. So is, is there a point in life where that outlook and, you know, ifs and buts, as you say, like if that was something that was ingrained, maybe it was through a parent or maybe an experience that you had earlier on in life, maybe in medical school or, or as a parent yourself? You or know, just- I don't know. I, I've analyzed it many times and thought, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Because the way I have reacted to this whole journey is not me. I never believed that I would be able to do and handle what I do handle. You never know how strong you are until you're called upon to be strong. Mm. That was what somebody said to me when this all started. And that is the mantra that I've gone through. You know, and, and I thought to myself, if I'm going to do this, what am I going to get out of What is going to be the advantage? What's going to be the disadvantage in that? So why didn't I pursue this thing about the radiology thing? Because I didn't think it was going to be to anybody's advantage at all. It was just going to chew up emotional energy that we needed for something else. It wasn't going to change anything. And, in fact, it was never a discussion until last week or the week before when I went and saw the general surgeon here again in town to ask him if he could do something about those liver mets. And as I walked out the office, he said to me, if I'd only seen you three months earlier, we would have had a completely different outlook. And I said to him, das, c'est la vie. That's life. That's where we are. We are on this journey. And as I said to you, I'm absolutely amazed at the way I've handled it. I'm absolutely amazed at the way I've handled it. I, I am a faith-based person, but I'm not what people would term a religious person. When all of this was happening, I was starting to make plans for the future and that, and I thought, well, I must go along and have a chat to the local parish priest also and say to him, Father, you're going to see me one day. Will you, will you do the duty and that sort of thing? And we had a good laugh about it because I banter with people about this all the time. And he said to me, well, why don't you come to Mass? I said, Father, I haven't been coming for a long time. I'm not now going to come and earn frequent flyer points because of what's going to happen. 
And he said, no, I understand. But he stays in touch with me. You know, so that is the, that is the sort of attitude I've had. And, you know, I talk about so much positive stuff that has happened. Um, the people that I've been surrounded by are just absolutely incredible. The support structure that we have in this town is just absolutely amazing. Oncologist, general practitioner. My general practitioner phones me twice a week to find out how I am. The palliative care people phone me every week to see how they, they will come to my house at any time. I have a wonderful wife who's a nursing sister who looks after me. My children, everybody. I have everything. My colleagues are around me all the time. And they know, you know, because when all of this happened, we were talking about quality of life. To me, it was all about quality of life. It wasn't about quantity. And they said to me, what are the things that you deem are important as quality of life for you? So I said, well, there are four or five things that are important. Number one, I love playing my golf. My golf was my occupational therapy. I said, I want to keep playing golf. I want to be able to go walking on the beach and in the area around me. I want to be able to converse and have intellectual discussions and dinners with my friends. I want to remain mentally compass for my family and I want to maintain my dignity. Those are the things that I measure my quality of life with. And when those things start going, then I know that we're now on the train drifting down to the river. And they're starting to happen. I can't play golf anymore. I can't go walking like I used to. I fortunately can still have the gift of the gab and I can still yak to my friends. We can still go out and have meals. And I'm still surrounded by all these wonderful people. So when people say, what has happened in your life? I say, these are the miracles that have happened in my life. I'm not cured of the disease. And I don't believe I will be cured of the disease. And it's not as if, you know, I keep on hearing this thing, oh, you must keep fighting and you must keep fighting. But you've got to be realistic. And this is what is different. And this is different for everybody. What you regard as being realistic and what I regard as being realistic are two, two totally different things. You're not right, I'm not wrong, and vice versa. You know, I have my set of parameters where I see this is going, and I admire the people who are prepared to go down the alternative route of medicine. When you see what people are prepared to put themselves through, I admire them for that. I can't do it. I just cannot do it. I'm too much of a scientist. I rely on the science and the facts and all that. And I listen to other people. And I've always had a very open mind about alternative medicine. And if and being in ENT, we were faced with a lot of people wanting alternative medicine for their allergies and that. And I'd say, go do it. If it works for you, that's fine. I don't have all the answers, but the answers I have are the ones that I know a lot about. I don't know how turkey tail mushroom works, but I do know how an antihistamine works. So, you know, I admire those people, but I don't prescribe to this thing that you must fight to the end. And, and if, you, if you decide to say, that's it, I'm calling it quits. I'm now going to sit back and let nature, I don't call that giving up the fight. I call that accepting realism. And that's my interpretation of it. It's powerful that's stuff. That's my story. That's powerful stuff. I mean, I, I think you, what you just, uh, you know, the, the reality of it from a doctor um, and I think, you know, doctors deal with the reality every day is 
super powerful in the sense that, you know, like you said, you, you, you've looked at it from a quality versus a quantity. And I think, you know, I can say from my experience and I was talking to someone earlier today about this, uh, you know, journey that I, that I saw my dad go on, you know, there wasn't quality of life. He may have had quantity, you know, when you look at statistically, like, you know, how long he lived, but quality of life, he didn't have much quality of life the last six months. And I, and I think the one thing, Patty, and, and maybe you can agree or disagree with this, this disease, pancreatic cancer, is evil in so many ways. But to be able, as a patient, to not allow it to take everything away, and in fact, like you said, like with the quality of life, to know and to not let that dictate everything is super powerful in the way that, you know, yeah, the, the cancer might ultimately win, but it's not going to win everything, if that makes sense. No, no, I agree with you 100%. It's not going to win everything because, as I say, in my case, it has brought out a side of me and people around me that I never knew existed. Yeah. And as I said earlier, this is the miracle that I believe I'm living, that, 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 that I'm seeing this, that I'm experiencing this, that I have the people to allow me to experience this. And this is the most wonderful gift I could have been given. It's the most wonderful gift. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. I cannot ask for more. I cannot ask for more. Who knows? I do worry that I'm talking like this now. Who knows once I start slipping, what is going to happen? I pray to God that I remain exactly the same. And Rose and I were talking about this, having coffee this morning and saying, well, what is the better way to go? Boom, suddenly, or just slowly drift away? And this is what we talk about. We talk about, well, I see going suddenly, you know, I'd like to know that I'm going. I, uh, I don't like the idea of not knowing I'm going. Uh, <laughs> whereas if you go slowly, well, then you go gently. And, and we can't choose it. But Correct. these are the conversations that we have. So, so we all know what to expect. We all know what to expect. And it's good that we have them, that we're not hiding our feelings about it. Um, but, yeah, that, that is the gift that I've got now. And as I say, I never knew that I had it in me to be able to fight or to be able to attack this thing the way I have. My mother said to me she lost her firstborn child in the 1950s from diphtheria. And she said to me, never fear anything in life because it will always attack you. And she said, I feared that Ronnie would get diphtheria. And you know, throughout my life, I always had a fear in the back of my mind about pancreatic cancer. I always had a fear about it. And when I heard Kim talking yesterday or the day before about, was it Kim or was it that girl Manji, the book I read, said that this all starts in fear. She said everything starts in the mind, it starts in fear. And I thought, well, my mother said that to me all those years ago. So, you know, we don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. But just another thought, you know, that sometimes what you fear will come true. And pancreatic cancer. Yeah, what you manifest, right? Like if you, in the subconscious mind, if you're manifesting 
you know, something like that. Um, sometimes you find that it's par powerful stuff. I've got a couple questions here for you, Patty. Still, yes, please. I've never heard. First of all, I have to chuckle here. I, I was uh, I was uh, raised Roman Catholic, and uh, I like the analogy of frequent flyer. I've never heard anyone talk about their faith of going to church as a and getting those frequent flyer miles. Uh, so that made me chuckle a bit. But in, in seriousness, here. I know you mentioned faith and you said, you, you know, it, it wasn't something that, uh, you know, you would, you would practice or you would go regularly to church. Um, but has that always been part of who you are? And, and, and what do I mean by that is, you know, I found that, you know, faith becomes kind of this part of the foundation for people fighting the disease. And it not necessarily means someone going to church or going to temple every week, but just a, a belief in, you know, faith and in God and in and, and something greater than all of us. And I, I'd imagine being a doctor, I mean, you know, going through training, I mean, you know, death is something that I know is kind of hand in hand with medicine that is talked about is dealt with, um, in its own way. So I would imagine that, that that conversation, you know, in terms of faith and, and your practice that you worked in day in, day out was something that was somewhat common. Yeah. I was born and brought up a Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, junior school, high school. Uh, my mother was a devout Catholic who'd kick us out of bed every Sunday morning and march us off to mass and as all Catholic boys in those days did. I know that. That same way. And I was at boarding school, so we went to Mass every morning. And when I left school, well, suddenly the world was open and Catholicism was there. But it was not, I belong to student Catholic societies, but just because they were good places to go drinking and partying and that sort of thing. <laughs> not for any other reason. <laughs> social um, aspect. Yeah, they were, they were social things. But the Catholic faith was always there in the background. It was always there, you know. And, and I believed it, it set the template for my morality in life. And it taught me the discipline that I needed to be a doctor. Because being at boarding school and being at a Catholic boarding school in, the, in those days I was at boarding school, was a pretty vigorous experience, you know. It was a very, very disciplined existence. But I, in latter years, I really appreciated that. And so my faith was always there. You know, I would stop every now and again. I'd say, thank God for this. I'm about to do this operation. I'm scared. God, God, guide my hands. Um, so it was, it was to that extent. When my children were born, they were all baptized in the Catholic Church. We went to Mass regularly. They all did their first communion. They went to Catholic schools. So it was always there. And um, so when all of this happened, and then I thought, well, now am I going to start praying every night and that? And I said, but I do. I do. You know, I don't go down on my knee and take my rosary out and, and, and that sort of, but I do. And another mantra I've always had in life is that God has performed miracles in my life. And they might not be fantastic things or mind-blowing things, but there are things that have happened in my life that I've never been able to explain. And I always say those are the miracles that God has performed. And 
now that I'm at this stage, when, as I come back to what I said before, everything that's happening around me, I believe is part of this miracle. It's part of this all. And, well, now, because you don't sleep so well as you used to anymore, you have a lot of time at night to lie and stare at the ceiling. So you think, well, I remember one of our brothers at school saying, when you lie awake at night, why don't you just waste time with God? And I thought, well, isn't that a lovely saying? You don't pray, you just waste time with God. And that is what I do. So I waste time with God. And I don't ask for, please heal me, you know, do that sort of thing. We just have a chat. Because I believe that every step that is happening and that is going to happen is going to be guided. So, you know, am I at the stage of the end of treatment? Is there really nothing else that can be done? My feeling is mm, there's probably nothing else that can be done, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm going to go see the oncologist again in a couple of weeks, and we'll have a final discussion, and, and then we'll put an end to it. And, and if there's nothing, I accept it, uh, and we move on. But I'm being guided, and, you know, you call that your gut instinct. And I've heard you say to people before, listen to your gut instinct. And I say that to patients also. You know, if you're not happy, go to somebody that you are happy with. Get another opinion. Be happy with them. But be careful that you're not looking for the opinion that suits you. That's the danger with the second opinion. But be happy. Be comfortable with a person saying, I'm happy with this man. He doesn't make me feel on edge thinking, oh, he says, I've just got reflux and I must take this. I haven't got reflux. You know, so um, I say to, uh, and my wife, Rosé, is very, very good on that. Her gut instinct is always right. She's always right. You know, she says, and she says to my daughters and my grandkids, listen to your gut. Yeah, your gut's usually right nine times out of ten, right? Like in, in, yeah, in terms. It is, you know. Yeah. I, call it, I call it the angel sitting on my shoulder. Yeah. When I'm operating yeah. and I'm sitting and I'm sitting with a problem, I think, oh, where do I go from here? I'm not sure what do I do. Put on everything, sit back on my shoulder. What must I do now? Okay, carry on. Yeah, it's, you know, so. it's powerful stuff. And what you just said, I think, is is there's a golden nugget in that, in the sense of the second opinion. And I know yeah. we've talked a lot about that on the podcast, but I, I feel like a lot of times the second opinion validates that first opinion. Yep. You know, and people need that. They don't have that initial instinct that this is the right path they're on, but the second opinion then validates that they're on the right path, right? Yep. And it's like almost that that validation that we require as humans to know that we're on that right path. But if you have faith and you have that that feeling in your gut, you have to follow that. Yep, yep. A yep. couple more questions here for you. And you've mentioned family you've talked about your wife your daughter your grandkids and then friends how has that been for you during this i mean you you right out of the gate you mentioned you know the, the relationship that you have with the gp and the small you know i'd say small but you know your town that you're in and just the community and what people have been able to do for you from the medical field and your colleagues that you went to school with, how has that brought you strength and supported you during this time? Enormously. Enormously. I couldn't imagine any 
poor person having to face this journey without a support structure. If I could go back to my friend in Port Elizabeth who got the pancreatic cancer. No. Was it no? Was it that was no? That's yeah. right. Um, when he diagnosed himself, he was living by himself in an apartment in Port Elizabeth. Hmm. He had just met or re-met a girlfriend from his school days when he was 18 years old. He's now 68 years old. Well, he was 68, so that's 50 years later. He'd been through two marriages. He'd just gone through his second marriage. He was living in this apartment. He'd sold everything off. And he said to me, you know, for the first time in my life, I am in love. I know what love is. I've met Janet and I am deeply in love and I am so deeply distressed that the time I fall deeply in love, I'm going to be dead very soon. He said, can you imagine me living in this little apartment by myself and dying with this disease? She has taken me in and she's going to look after me and nurse me until I die. And that's what they did. They had, I think, five months together. And he said it was the most five months in his 68 years was the happiest time. For once in his life, he knew what true love was. So that to me was incredibly revealing also, incredibly revealing. I could have ended up or anybody can end up facing this terminal condition and living in the most appalling or difficult circumstances. They might be great materialistic circumstances, but socially and psychologically, if you are isolated during this, it is a living hell. It's not the disease, it's the psychological disease, which is a terrible thing. So, yeah, without the people around me, I don't think I'd be able to have the attitude that I've got. And, you know, given that we're in COVID pandemic times, yep. I know here in the United States, um, you know, we've talked a lot about this. You know, we've had some some guests on that, you know, talk about how, you know, their loved ones now, you know, drop them off at the door and then they're going in by themselves. It's, it's just so sad yeah. and so dark. And then, mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a lot of things that mentally we can overcome. And I, I do believe, you know, cancer is one of them. If you have a strong will and a strong mental game to get through the battle, but you know, the odds are stacked, especially right now with COVID, you know, in terms of, you know, these patients and patient families not being able to be there or friends not being able to be there like they used to be able to. Yep. You, yeah. you mentioned the memoir. What gave you the inspiration to write that? And I know you, you gave a, a tidbit here in the, in the interview, you talked about, you know, you wanted to do it for your grandkids, but you know, yeah. what was the reasoning behind that? My next door neighbor is an author. And um, she came up to me when this all started and she said, you know, your grandchildren are 11, nine, four, and three. She God said, they don't, they don't know who you are, particularly the four-year-old and the three-year-old. Yeah. Why don't you tell them who you are? I said, oh, really, you know, nobody. <laughs> she said, I tell you what we'll do. You tell me your story and I'll write it down. And she was the one who 
encouraged me to actually do this. So her and I would meet on a weekly basis and we would spend an hour. And I went back to as long as I could remember my childhood and went all the way through right up until now, telling anecdotes of growing up, getting out family photographs, all this sort of thing, putting the story together, the sanitized version of who was me. This is for my grandkids, so it had to be the sanitized version. (laughs) (laughs) And with all the humorous little family anecdotes and everything like that. And Stephanie kept on encouraging me to do this. And she was absolutely fantastic about doing it. So we put the whole thing together and she said, okay, we're going to publish it. I said, forget about it. We're not going to publish this thing. This is all too hard. She said, we're going to publish it. You're going to give your grandkids and your family a book about who you are. And there, there's the book called I Always Wanted to Fly. And the reason for the t- title of the book is that when I was growing up, I was either going to be a pilot or a surgeon. My father and my brother were in the Air Force. They said, don't you come near an aeroplane. <laughs> There's no way to make a living. You're just a, you're just a taxi driver. You go and be a surgeon. So I ended up being a surgeon. But that was why I t- entitled the book. I always wanted to fly. And um, it's just been published now. And um, it's, it's a humorous look at me. So one day my grandkids will read it and say, uh, you know, Grandpa, he failed twice at medical school, but he got up and he passed again and he partied too much here and he did too much there. And then he went and specialized and he did And I, I put that all down for them. So one day they're going to read it. So that was the reason. But it's thanks to Stephanie, in fact, that, that that was done. And the encouragement of my family also to keep doing it, keep doing it, because it was hard. It was emotionally hard sometimes. It was really emotionally hard because you're going right back into your childhood into many incidences in your childhood, you know, and you're relating happy times, you're relating sad times. So it, but by the same time, it was, it was very therapeutic. It was very therapeutic. And, um, you know, I believe everybody's got a book in them. Everybody's got a story to tell. And I was just so fortunate to have Stephanie next door who said, you tell me your story and I'll write it down for you. That's pretty special. Uh, first yeah, of all, very, very and, and did you did you fail med school twice? I failed twice. I failed twice. So I partied too much in first year, and second year I was just a bit of a psychological mess. But after that, I never ever failed. Never failed again. But and I and I bring that up because you mentioned it. But I mentioned before this arc, right? Yep. I'd love to do research on this someday with all the, the, the podcast survivors that we've talked to. So th- that's kind of a traumatic experience. And you've talked about quality of life. You were very adamant that you wanted to have, you know, you want to be able to golf, walk, converse, have dignity. And you think about like, quality of life if you if you talk about like you know like you, you said you were you were involved partying having a good time socially you had this you know the the, the trauma of well, I wouldn't say trauma but you experienced failure right of not being able to to achieve that goal but then you know you get back on this arc and then now you you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer 
and how you handled that and where you are today. It's just fascinating to me because I, I, I mean, you know, I, I tend to look at things optimistic from an optimist point of view in the sense that like things that happen in our lives prepare us for these things later on in life, whether we know that or not. And some things do just happen, right? I've had, a, had people say like, it's just bad luck and, and things happen. But I do think though that we go through a series of events in our life to prepare us for the bigger thing, you know, so to know that, um, and I, I guess I'm, I'm, what I'm saying here, Patty, is that, you know, you had these experiences early on, um, you know, that may have prepared you for what you're going through right now. And as I, I mentioned before, the outlook, you know, of ifs and buts, you know, you, you had some of these experiences early on, again, that prepare you for that later in life. So it's just kind of fascinating, you know, for me, I've kind of, here's my notes. I know the audience can't see, but look at all these notes that I've been taking here in our <laughs> podcast. You know, I've got a whole page of, of notes here and just, it's fascinating to me. And it's, it's really kind of cool from my standpoint and from where I'm sitting to see kind of this arc that you've been on and, and learning all these details. So thank you. you know you know, the things that I think prepared me for that, you know, now that you mention it, when I think about it, number one, I spoke about the discipline at boarding school. Yeah. Right? That was the one thing, you know, um, the other big factor was my mother. My mother was an incredible disciplinarian. You know, it was black or white. It wasn't gray. When I failed first year university, I said, I'm not going back. She said, you're going back. I said, I'm not going back. I'm going to be a lawyer. She said, no way. You're going back. <laughs> And um, I was going on holiday. She said, you're not going out of this front door until you sign those forms to go back. So I said, all right, I want to go on holiday. And I signed <laughs> and I went back. And I was humiliated. I was deeply humiliated that I'd failed. And I was, I was more humiliated because I'd failed them. I'd failed my mother and father who'd worked hard, who were both mm. working class people who'd sacrificed a lot for me to go to university. And I went and I passed first year. And then I changed universities and all sorts of things happened. And I failed that year again. And again, I was deeply humiliated. But my mother, being the person who understood what had happened, and the professor of anatomy, who was a, who was a very famous world paleoanthropologist called Professor F Philip Tobias, he called me into his office and he said, I know what happened to you last year. I know how you broke down, how the pressure of traveling two, three hours a day by bus to get to university and all that. He said, I'm going to give you another chance. You come back and you do second year again, and you will pass and you will never fail again. And that's exactly what happened. But I went through life and I went through my training, always knowing that I had to work harder than everybody else to get to where I was. And I put it all down to boarding school, upbringing, mother, basic discipline, and that's what kicked me along, kicked me along. And I've never, ever thought of that in terms of what I'm going through now. But now that you mention it, it's, it's probably a factor also. Thank you. Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I, I'm telling you, I'd love to have someone come and uh, do some research on our interviews because I, I think there's a, there's a correlation that I've seen from talking to so many survivors that they've gone through these things early in life that have prepared them for this fight and for what they've gone through. 
So it's, it's, it's powerful stuff to hear. So, um, thank you for sharing that. My last question, uh, for you. And if you feel, if you've listened to many of the podcasts, you may have a kind of inkling of, of what this will be. And I always preface this by saying, uh, there's no right or wrong answer to this. Um, this is a loaded question. It's a hard one, but for your experience, and what you've gone through, Patty, how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of it? I'm trying to think of the name of the New York bestseller, The Emperor of All Maladies. The fellow who wrote that book, I think his name was, I can't remember now. Anyway, pancreatic cancer to me is the emperor of all maladies. It is the most evil, wicked disease out for many, many reasons that, that we've all enumerated on, that it presents late, that nobody knows what's going on, that the research money is not there as it is for the more um, swish types of cancers and that. And um, Dr. Mukherjee, that's his name, Dr. Mukherjee, the emperor of all maladies. And um, it's, a, it's an evil disease. To me, it actually personifies evil disease. The others, even, even the brain tumors and that sort of thing, just don't seem to be as evil as this thing. It creeps up on you. A cousin of mine's sister went into hospital and three weeks later was dead from metastatic pancreatic cancer. You know, And I talk about the bell curve all the time. Where do we fit on the bell curve? Some go there three weeks, some go there five years. But most of us go somewhere along that bell curve, you know. Um, and you can't escape the curve. But to me, it just epitomizes it. And so much so that, you know, when you talk about purple, purple to me just means pancreatic cancer, you know, and, and, and I, think, I think it just sums it up. And we've got a long way to go, and a lot of people are doing, doing the most wonderful work and that sort of thing, and I certainly won't get the benefit of it, but a lot of people will get the benefit of it somewhere along the line. But yeah, it, it personifies evil, destructive disease. My last thing for you, if someone's listening to this podcast and they'd love to connect with you, maybe learn a little bit more about your treatment history or talk to you about anything that maybe sparked their interest, where's the best place that someone can connect with you? I can connect through my email and we can... We can arrange to do that. And my email address is paddy, P-A-D-D-Y, E-N-T, at M-E.com. I sincerely hope, and this is what worried me when I was going to do this podcast, that people are not going to look upon my presentation of this as being from an elitist point of view because I was a doctor, that I came in at this and, you know, well, you got this because you were that. And I'm worried about that, you know, that people might interpret it as that. But that is not my intention. My intention is purely to put across this is a different point of view. That is all that it is. I'm no better. At the end of the day, I'm just like you. I'm a patient at the end of the day. And that is what I've always wanted to be. I'm a patient with a bit of insight, which sometimes was good and sometimes was not that good. But my intention was never never to be any different to the vast majority of my fellow sufferers out there. 
Well, I, I think from my standpoint, from what you've told me, this has taken a lot of courage because you had to remove yourself from the doctor role and go into the patient role, which I can imagine is very difficult. And it, it creates a, a vulnerability when you're constantly in control and, and saving patients to now be vulnerable, to have trust and to, you know, open yourself up to being the patient, which if you're doing something so routinely every day for 30 plus years, you know, being that person to solve everything to now being on the other side, that's a lot to ask. I was given the grace to do it. I've done it. Well, thank you for joining us on the project purple podcast. And, uh, you know, I've taken so many notes here. Our audience, I know listening, can't see this, but, um, I've got a couple quotes here and I want to leave our audience with this. You said, uh, two powerful points that I put very at the top of the, the the sheet here is it was a wonderful gift and you didn't know how strong you were until you got through it. So I want to thank you from our community for having the courage to come on the podcast and talk about it. And, um, it's just been a pleasure. I mean, I know it took us a while to connect here and, you know, with the time difference, uh, you know, this is, this has worked out great that we were able to do this, Patty. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the Project Purple podcast and allowing me the honor to share your journey because it has been an honor to hear it firsthand and to connect you with our audience. So from here at the Project Purple podcast studio, that's a wrap of another episode. And if you love what you hear today, please follow us, share this episode. Until next time, please be safe. And thank you for listening to the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.